This morning, we're starting a series uh, that I'll get to here in a second that I think is going to speak to where many of us are at here in life because um, maybe you already are uh, extremely pull-out-your-hair kind of busy, or maybe you as a student especially, uh, when you're going into school this next week or the next two weeks, um, maybe you're about to get very busy, but I think we all are either in or are currently stepping into a season that is going to be extremely busy. Can I get an amen? Glory, come on. We can all relate to that. And I think we can all relate to these feelings of being so busy, you got your head in the sand, you're focused on your job, you're focused on that degree, you're focused on that honey that you've been stalking on Facebook for the past two months, which is all right, that's fine. But we're busy, and, and life is happening, and fall is in the air, and uh, we can all relate to the feeling where God is all but kind of put on the shelf in these seasons, and uh, God is kind of an afterthought in some ways, and it's difficult to engage in the spiritual disciplines, and you're tired, and you don't want to wake up early, and you forget about prayer, and church Sunday mornings, man, that's a commitment. And whether it's the spiritual disciplines or whether it's just the awareness of God being with us, I think it's so easy in these seasons of busyness for us to just kind of forget and for us to get tunnel visioned and to focus on life that is happening. Good things, things that are good, but life that is busy. And so this morning, uh, I want to start a series called The Practice and the Presence. Everybody say, The Practice and the Presence. And uh, I think this series is going to be extremely valuable uh, and extremely pertinent to our season of life right now, because all throughout this series, we're going to uh, talk about the idea uh, and these concepts of the Lord's imminence, the Lord's closeness, how he's with us. And not only that, but how we can foster uh, an awareness of him and position our lives to listen for him and to recognize him as often as we can. And so I want to encourage you, uh, let's lean in throughout this series. Uh, Please take notes. We got note cards on your table. Pull out your phone. Uh, Listen for those ideas that stick out to you that you know are just for you. Uh, Because the Holy Spirit is amazing in the way that he does that. Takes a general principle and applies it uniquely and specifically. Because again, I think this is going to be a very pertinent series for all of us. That uh, if we press into and if we lean in and if we listen for the Lord in it, I think he's going to speak some really, really big and crucial things to us. Sound good? Sound good? Okay, thank you. Um, This morning, we are um, titling this message, The Imminent Presence. And you better get used to that word imminent, because I'm about to use it like 25 times, and I'm not exaggerating. The imminent presence. Week one of the practice in the presence. And as we begin this series, let's quiet our hearts, let's come before the Lord, and let's invite him to speak, and to shepherd us, and to lead us beside still waters. So let's pray. Lord of life, we look to you this morning. And we look to you in the busyness of our lives or in the, um, maybe even the pre-season of the busyness. God, we know that life's about to ramp up for all of us. We know school's starting. We know work is going to ramp up, just the fall rhythms. Um, Lord, it's about to get busy. And we stop for a second and we pause and we look to you as the Lord and the giver of life. We look to you as the one who satisfies our longing soul with good things. 
We look to you as the God of peace, the God of hope, the God of joy, the God who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may comfort others. So right now we pause and we take a second and we, like we so often do, just sit in the stillness and be quiet. And instead of just hustling through this, Lord, we make space for you right now. And as uncomfortable sometimes as silence is, Uh, We commit this next 30 seconds, even a minute, to you. And we ask that in the stillness, uh, you would speak to us in a way that is beyond, that is deeper than words. So come, Holy Spirit. Let's quiet ourselves right now for a moment. Lord, in the stillness, we know that you are God. And we remember that there's not a thing you haven't done to make us yours. So we look to you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence that's in this place. We ask that you would teach us according to your word. Would you guide us into all truth? And we ask that these words of my mouth and these meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, and that you would somehow use these broken and fallen words that I speak for your glory. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen and amen. Um, We live in a world that throughout the ages and throughout the centuries have been um, grappling with this idea of the proposition of God. Where even since the very beginning of time, humanity, uh, whether uh, the, the people of God or not the people of God, those who define themselves as being the Lord's and those who don't, everyone throughout time has tried to wrestle and, and wrap their heads around these ideas of, of who God is. Is there a God? What is he like? How do we know him? Uh, can he be found? And throughout time, we've been wrestling humanity with these questions of God and who he is, and uh, which has led to many of the uh, major religions and philosophies of God um, throughout the ages. They've, they've largely, in trying to seek to answer these questions, is there a God? How do we know him? What's his nature like? What do we do with these things that we think we see God in? As they're wrestling with it, really largely the majority of religions and philosophies have painted this picture of a God that is largely, if not exclusively, transcendent. And what that means is that God is beyond the human experience. And words that we would use to uh, describe and explain his transcendence are words like omnipotent, right? Uh, Complete and perfect, eternal strength, Uh, omniscient, all-knowing, eternal, infinite, These kind of words that explain that God is above and beyond time and space and outside the human experience, which if you carry that too far, you get into deism, 
where God is uh, removed and, and apart from his creation, that he's made them to kind of live to their own demise, and he's wound this universal and cosmic clock that will one day hit uh, zero, and things will kind of just be done, and then there will be God again. But um, when we look at the Judeo-Christian faith, we see that one of the great scandals— um, one of the many scandals, I would argue, especially in this world of postmodernism that puts emphasis on subjective truth and relativism, one of the many scandals we see in this Judeo-Christian faith that we've been grafted into is that God, yes, is a God of transcendence beyond time and space, but he is also a God of imminence. This scandalous notion that this uh, infallible and infinite God has actually chosen to draw near to his fallen creation. That he's chosen to dwell with that which is finite. It's one of the big scandals of the Judeo-Christian faith. And uh, so often, I think, in our lives, we can uh, forget some of the notions that God is imminent and maybe focus more on the transcendence of the Lord, which is, which is good. We ought to think of God as transcendent. We ought to think of him definitely as inhuman and beyond our experience. But we can so often in the busyness and routine of our lives forget that God is imminent, that he is close, that he has drawn near to us, and that we can commune with our creator that he's not this distant God that we engage in these spiritual disciplines for and we tithe and we take communion and we go to church and we read the Bible and we pray and we do all these things because we're trying to bring this distant God down to our level. But instead, we can so often forget that he is close, that he is already present among us. And so we can work and work and work and get busy and, and think and get into doing mode, right? We do in order to gain this distant God's approval and his favor and his eye when in reality we're already his. And if we posture ourselves to simply be his, then we remember that he is imminent. We remember that he's close. And the beauty of this, this heritage of the Christian faith that we've entered into is that God has always revealed himself to his people as imminent, as close, as dwelling in their midst. We see this throughout the history of time and throughout this narrative and, and history of the people of God, that God has always uh, drawn near to his creation. And we see this even all the way back to Israelites and the law. And so let's go to Exodus 29, uh, 44 to 46. It's going to be up on screen number one and, come on people, screen number two. Or you can uh, open up your Bibles and, or get it on your phone or whatever your rhythm is. But Exodus 29, 44, we see even in the law God drawing near to his people um, because it says this. This is God talking to Moses. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons will be consecrated to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? That I might dwell. Everybody say dwell. That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. 
Here in Exodus and really throughout the Pentateuch, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, we see God um, bringing up this people of God, raising up the Israelites and giving them the law and giving them the sacrificial system. And here in Deuteronomy 29, or excuse me, Exodus 29, we are smack dab in the middle of God giving the law to his people and God establishing this sacrificial system that they are to abide by and they are to live by um, so that they may posture themselves unto him. And establishing this uh, sacrificial system, it's interesting because God does not say, hey, I'm distant and I'm, I'm far away, but if you do these things, then I'll come near. But instead, he says, I will dwell among you. And so offer these sacrifices because I dwell among you and because I'm in your midst. And I think so often we, as the New Testament people of God, as the church, as people under the new covenant, bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, I think that we so often can look at the law and can look at the sacrificial system as a way of appeasing a distant and angry God that really just wants to go Hulk Hogan on his people, right? He wants to give them the smackdown, give them the the infinite haymaker, and just make them pay and retribution for their sins, right? We can think that God is just kind of pissed and these people are trying to you know get in right relationship with him and he's far but in reality God reveals himself to Moses and to the people of God as close he's dwelling with them he's chosen to come near and I think we um, in, in thinking that God was distant in those days and thinking that he was this angry God we can muddy the waters and get really 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 confused about what the sacrificial system was and we can look at the death, and we can look at the gore, and we can look at like them slaying pigeons and lambs and, and all these like animals. And it's this rugged system that God has enacted. And we can get hung up sometimes on the purpose and the nature of it. But I think the sacrificial system becomes much less elusive to our understanding and much less complex uh, when we realize that the sacrificial system was the divine response to the peril of God's holy presence dwelling among his people. Think about that for a second. The sacrificial system was the divine response to the peril of God's holy presence dwelling among his people. In other words, this very, very, very infinitely holy and pure God had chosen to dwell and live among a very, very, very impure and unholy people. Which means that every single time there was sin, there was perpetual defilement. It met the holy presence of God. And so there was was this disturbance in what God had enacted among his people. In fact, um, the best way I've heard this described is by Cornelius Plantinga. Which, if you're a a theological nerd like I am, I would highly recommend you dig into his stuff. But Cornelius Plantinga explains that with every sin that was uh, um, uh, committed against the Lord under the sacrificial system, it was a culpable disturbance of shalom. That's a $5 phrase for you. A culpable disturbance of shalom. In other words, God in his very nature, as he came and dwelt among his people... They lived in this enacted peace of God simply because God was with them. Where God is, there is peace. Where God is, there is wholeness. Where God is, there is freedom. There is life. There is hope. And, and God, this holy God dwelling among his people, enacted by his very nature and the very reality that he was with them, this shalom, this peace. 
And every single sin that was committed while God was dwelling with them was a culpable disturbance of that shalom. It sent shockwaves into this peace that God had enacted. And so therefore, uh, retribution must be made. Sacrifices must be made to atone for this very unholy people's unholiness that met the very holiness of God. It's beautiful. And so uh, the sacrificial system, we can get confused and, and we can think it's all complex. And there's a lot of moving pieces and complexities to it. But really, when we think of the sacrificial system as the mechanism for which the people of God had to uh, reestablish that shalom, then it becomes a little simpler. And it was all because God had chosen to dwell among his people. And so we see even in the old days of Israel, and even under the sacrificial system, God had chosen to draw near. Interestingly enough, centuries later, we see David and the psalmists come along, right? David, this beautiful uh, poet, he's making the girls swoon, and he's saying all these things about the Lord, and he's, he's, he's praising God, and he has this beautiful poetic language. And he even... In, uh, in old Israel, speaks of God's imminence that has uh, dwelt with his people. And we find this very beautifully in Psalm 139, 7 through 12. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there... Your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to you. And so again, we see... Under the old covenant, God chose and revealed himself as close and as imminent to his people. He's not this distant God who's about to go Hulk Hogan, but instead he's chosen to draw near intimately, richly with his people. And so David and the psalmist kind of catch a glimpse of this, and centuries later, these guys called the prophets come along, where um, you got, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of the, like, heady prophetic books in the Bible, where we're like, what the heck do we do with this? You're talking about bones coming to life, and okay, cool, not really sure, and there's the statue with, like, a gold head and a silver body, and okay, we don't know what to do with this. But the prophets came along, and the big idea that they started to communicate was that there would be a more profound and a more intimate and a more tangible imminence of God sent to his people. That in the days to come, they weren't really sure when it would be. They weren't really sure what all it would entail. But they came and they said, look, there's coming a day where God is going to send someone, this, this Messiah, this servant, that we're really not sure what exactly he'll look like or what he'll be like. But we can give you a little picture that he will be this imminent presence of God that will be more profound and that will be more tangible and that will be more intimate than anything God has revealed himself through in our history. You thought God was close now. Well, get ready because there's someone who's coming who will be the imminent presence of God to us. And for century after century after century, they were calling the Israelites into intimacy with the Lord and saying, get ready because this guy is coming. Make straight your crooked paths because the kingdom of heaven is coming near. And then finally, this guy named John the Baptist, who was woolly and who was bearded and who was hairy, looking like Tom Hanks from Castaway, right? He like comes out and he starts declaring, Wilson, wait, No, no, sorry, not Wilson. He's saying, repent, 
The kingdom of heaven is near. This Messiah, this one that the prophets have foretold, he's coming. The kingdom of God is close. So get clean and repent because this imminent presence of God is coming near to us. Once again, this holy presence is going to dwell among an unholy people. He never left, but it's about to be a little bit more imminent, a little bit more close. And then, finally, Jesus Christ steps on the scene. Jesus, the immortal and eternal Son of God, breaks into human history and begins healing the sick and begins raising the dead and becomes working these signs and wonders and he extends unrivaled compassion to the people. And then it suddenly becomes very, very clear that this Jesus guy is the guy whom the prophets have spoken of and the guy whom this has all been about. He's the one, he's the enfleshment, he's the incarnation, the skin and bones, the tangible substance of this imminence of God. And God revealed himself as close uh, under the sacrificial system, and God revealed himself as close uh, through the the psalmists and and the Davidic line, and God revealed himself as close through the prophets. But now Jesus Christ, the incarnate son, is here, and he is the skin and bones of the imminence, the closeness of God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he's come to uh, redeem the people and he's come as a fulfillment and a culmination of the sacrificial system. He's the sacrifice that the Israelites haven't been able to pay. He's the sacrifice that hasn't given full remission of sins, but he comes and he dies and he gives remissions of sins as the sacrificial system uh, partially showed. And he's this imminent, close, incarnate presence of God. And so Jesus, he lives his life, and again, he works signs and wonders, and he's preaching this thing that is the kingdom of God that has come to earth. And uh, he knows full well that he's going to die, and he knows full well the brutality of the crucifixion. And he raises up these ragtag bunch of 12 disciples who are really all wild cards, and you have no idea what the heck they're going to do or what they're going to say. But he has patience for them, and he's loving, and he's generous, and he's kind to them. And he raises these guys up, and uh, the week comes, Passion Week, where he knows he's about to be delivered over to be crucified. And he still continues to heal and continues to preach the kingdom and continues to reveal that he has come as the imminent son of God. And hours before his crucifixion and hours before his death, he brings these guys, these 12 disciples, uh, soon-to-be apostles, minus Judas Iscariot, He brings them up to this upper room and they start partaking of this meal and he he starts teaching them and he washes their feet and it's this beautiful picture we see. But then he starts talking about his death and what's about to happen and his disciples are like, wait, what? No, you're the imminent son. You're the the one who was promised. You're the culmination of history. Like, how how can you die? How can this happen? What what are we going to do? And it's this sorrowful and this mournful time as the disciples, arguably for the first time in uh, their walk with Jesus, have really taken on the weight of the reality that Jesus is going to be crucified and going to die. And even then, they still didn't get it. But they're taking this on, and they're confused, and they're mourning, and Jesus is teaching them. But then there's kind of a shift. There's a shift in Jesus' teaching. There's a, there's a, a pivot, if you will, friends. And Jesus begins teaching of this one who will come after him. 
This one who, though he has to go away, he will send to dwell among the people. And this one is actually, it's going to be better that he goes away because this one is going to be imminent uh, with every single person, every believer in the ages to come. And we see this teaching in John 14, 15 through 17. He says this, telling his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. They're not going to be able to figure it out. They're not going to be, be able to quantify the spirit of God. The fallen man is not going to be able to see the spirit of God's work in your life. But even still, you will know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And Jesus here in this very raw and very brutal and very ominous almost kind of teaching to his disciples. Um, He's teaching that he's about to be crucified. He's teaching that he's about to die. But then he shifts and he says the spirit of God is going to be with you and will be in you. This reality, God has been imminent all along. He's been close, and, and I'm the imminent presence, but the, the Spirit of God, somehow the Lord is going to make a way for him to dwell in you and to live with you and to journey with you in this life of faith. And he's teaching them that the, that the Holy Spirit will be sent and that he will be near. But then let's put that verse back up on the screen because uh, Jesus says something really interesting in verse 18. Uh, he says, I will not leave you as what? orphans, I will come to you. And it's interesting that Jesus would say that because he's saying that the Holy Spirit's going to be sent, and he's in this line of talking about the Holy Spirit, but then he he kind of offers this random little tidbit, I won't leave you as orphans, I'll come to you. And apparently Jesus equated him leaving and not sending the Spirit as disowning his people. Apparently, he equated uh, the comforter and the paraclete. If he hadn't have come, then his disciples and his people would have been orphaned. They would have been disenfranchised. They would have been looking around, trying to live this life of faith and, and, and figure out how to do it without the imminent presence of God. But instead, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And I'm going to do that by the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to do it by my second coming. I'm going to come, and I'm going to, we're going to see each other face-to-face once again, and then I'll enact the new creation. But in the meantime, between the now and the not yet, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to dwell with you and will be in you. Everybody say, in you. And so the big idea that we see through this, and, and after Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and we all know the story, the upper room, a Pentecost, he fills the people of God, and Peter preaches a sermon, over 5,000 people get saved, and the whole book of Acts accounts this narrative of the Holy Spirit moving in power through the church after and because of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And now the Holy Spirit dwells in each and every one of us and has been dwelling in believers throughout the centuries. And as we see this, and as we walk through this narrative of creation, God revealing himself to Adam and Eve, walking with them in the cool of the day, and even with sin, raising up a people of God and saying, I'm going to dwell with you, and then enacting the sacrificial system and the law, and even being close then. And then he establishes uh, in, in the Davidic line the seed of Jesus Christ, 
And he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm still going to dwell with you as eminent. And then the prophets, and then Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit, and then the new creation and life of the world to come. He's saying, I will always be and have always been for you the imminent presence of God that you need. And so what we see, the big idea that we can take away from this narrative is that we were never meant to pilgrim the journey of faith without the imminent presence of God. If there's one thing that this narrative of redemptive history teaches us is that we were never meant to pilgrim this journey of faith without the imminent presence of God. We were never meant to live this life of faith apart from the Lord. We can't do it on, by ourselves. Isaiah, in fact, attests to the reality that even our righteousness is filthy rags before the Lord. And the Lord, knowing that, chooses to send his imminent presence. And we were, we were never meant to figure this thing out on our own, but all throughout time. The Lord has revealed himself to his people, not as distant, not just as transcendent beyond their human experience, but in their human experience, indwelling them. And now, as this narrative has progressed to our day and age, we now live as the people of God with this Holy Spirit living with and in us. To where it's not this flighty, cutesy Christian idea where, okay, yeah, the Holy Spirit's with us, but I don't really know what that means and can't really feel him. And it's just kind of this idealistic notion. But instead, we see the Holy Spirit is with us, giving us wisdom, speaking to us every day, wooing us into relationship with the Father, bringing us into this divine dance between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and bringing us into communion with this Trinity God. This Holy Spirit dwells with us, and it's not this cutesy idea, but it's this profound reality that this imminent presence of God is with us and in us. And so in the car, on the way to school, we can pray and we can commune with this imminent presence of God. When we're sitting in class even, and our teacher is talking, you know, Calc 2, and we're like, my God, how am I going to survive? Jesus, I need you. Holy Spirit. And you can pray, and you can, you can commune with the Holy Spirit, and you can zone out of math, maybe if that's kind of a gen ed, not in your major. I don't know. That's what I did. Whatever. But uh, you can pray, and you can commune with the Holy Spirit, you can be in your bed right before you go to sleep, and you can do what the psalmist says. You can remember the Lord through the meditations of the night, through the watches of the night. The Lord, the, he says that my soul is satisfied as with marrow and rich foods when I think of you, when I remember you through the watches of the night. We can remember the Holy Spirit and commune with him and live with him and recognize that he is the imminent presence of God that we need for this life of faith. And the Lord has never once cut off his people and said, yeah, figure that out. Uh, I'll give you these laws, boom, 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 boom. I'll start with 10, and then I'll kind of make it a little more complex later. Figure it out on your own. But instead, he says, you know what? You need these laws because a holy God has chosen to dwell with an unholy people, but you're not going to do it alone. I am with you and will be in you. And now the Holy Spirit is this imminent presence of God. And I think often in our lives, um, whether we intentionally mean to or whether we don't, we can get so caught up in the rhythm of life that we take away the imminent presence of God from our lives. Not meaning that God ever leaves us, but we, we lack the awareness of the presence of God that's with us always. And we try to engage in these spiritual disciplines and we try to get clean and we try to break this addiction and we try to walk through our lives and, and live this life of faith apart from this awareness of the imminent presence of the Holy Spirit. But when we do that, it's taking away something that is crucial and central to the foundation of our faith. 
and it's taking away something that really should never be taken away in the first place. And I want to give you guys an example of something that happens when we take something away that was never really meant to be taken away. So let's bring the lights down. Let's get a little moody in here. It's kind of moody. We'll, it'll make, we'll make it work. And I want you to check out this video. Okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. Hustle up, you guys. Just take a knee. Let's take a knee real quick. Take a knee. All right. Everyone's doing their ankle. Everyone's got the ankle. Twists. Let's do some twists. Let's go. Yeah. Get ready for those hatters, right? Okay. You guys ready for a good game today? Yeah. yeah. All right. Y'all warmed up? Yeah. Yes. Next. That's a nice goal. Let's get that out of there. Get that out of there. Go. Okay. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Here we go. Here in Olympia, we've been looking at how competition impacts youth, and it's usually kind of negative, especially if you're on the losing team. So last year, we took away the notion of scoring, which meant there were no winners and there were no losers. But in many ways, we felt like it just didn't go far enough. So we've actually taken away the ball. Throw in. Here we go. Throw in. Who's got it? Who's got it? There we go. There we go. There we go. Here, balls. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, 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 balls here. Balls here. Balls here. Balls there, balls there, balls there. Okay, good, good, good. All right, great, great. Good job, you guys. Coaching ballless soccer is very difficult uh, well, from my perspective because I have to do a lot of imagining. I got the ball. Here it comes. Ready? Here you go. You go first. Here we go. Here we go. Stephanie. Anna. All right, we'll get this going. There you are. Good. I got it. Yep. Good. Yeah, any coach can coach a kid on uh, soccer skills and having fun out there. But uh, the real challenge of my job as a coach in ball of soccer is uh, trying to keep track of where the ball is and, and coach the kids on how do you keep track of the ball and where is the ball. Kevin, what's going on? You look confused. I don't know where the ball is. We've been over this. Melissa obviously has the ball. Look it. Remember what I said? If you see it here, you'll see it there, right? There you go. See it here, you'll see it there. And there's the ball right there. You got this? Got go it. get the ball, Kev. Let's go. Let's go. Back at it. Hey, whoa. You saw that, right? Yeah. There you go. You, you saw that. Ah, here we go. We saw it, guys. So you have to walk a pretty fine line when it comes to scoring uh, because uh, whether it's a goal or not is really open to interpretation. But uh, ultimately, it's up to me. I had the final say. Get, get, uh, oh. Did you save that? Yeah. Okay, did you save that? Yeah. You can't save it every time. Okay. Did you save it? No. Okay, goal. That's a goal, you guys. That's a goal. Nice goal. Let's get that ball. Let's get that. All right, let's bring the lights up. First of all, that is not for real. All right, so thank God we don't live in a world where there's ball of soccer. At least not yet. But it's a goofy example of taking away something that ought not be taken away. And we as the people of God should not live a life of ballless soccer. Trying to do this thing without a very integral and central component of the game. Instead, we ought to recognize that this imminent presence of God that's been revealed throughout history and is now uh, revealed to us in the indwelling, abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. That is an integral part of our faith. And we ought not engage in spiritual disciplines or the life of faith apart from that. We ought not pilgrim this journey of faith apart from this awareness and this realization that the Holy Spirit is this imminent presence of God that is dwelling among us. Uh, He's the wisdom we need. He's the hope we need. He's the life we need. He's everything we need and more for this journey of faith. 
And so if, in fact, this is the case, then it should be our job, it should be our goal, our aim in life to position and posture ourselves and to order the very rhythm of our lives around this awareness of his presence and knowing that he's near. Uh, It should be our aim to develop practices that uh, we put in place into our lives to remember that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, with us and that we can commune with the creator whom we were made for. And these practices we're going to get to in the coming weeks and throughout this series. Um, But for now, let's pray, and then we'll jump into some discussions. Abba Father, we thank you for sending your imminent presence and for coming and dwelling among your people. God, we thank you for being with the people of Israel. We thank you for uh, coming and sending Jesus as the imminent, the incarnate, the flesh and bone of the imminence of God. And we thank you, God, Jesus Christ, that you sent the Holy Spirit to us to guide us into all truth and to not be distant, but to be with us and in us. And so, Holy Spirit, let us grow to recognize your presence and to recognize your nearness in our lives. We admit and we confess we cannot walk or journey this life of faith apart from you. But Lord, we want all of you. We need all of you. This life that you're calling us to, this road of faith in all that it entails, we need your Holy Spirit for the journey. We need the daily bread and water that your Spirit provides. And so, Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence with us. Thank you for never leaving us and never forsaking us. And would you help us to grow in this awareness and this knowledge and this life with you, knowing that you're with us until the very end of the age. I pray that as we discuss, you would make these ideas concrete. You would continue to speak to us in the Holy Spirit. You would have your way in this time. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Discussions right here. Discussions up there. Um, we'll take the next 10, 15 minutes process this together, and then we'll, uh, we'll close in prayer and dismiss. All right, much love, and God bless you as you discuss. All right. You guys bring those discussions to a close, offer some final thoughts. Wrap those up. I'm about to pray for us and send us out, but, but first I want to um, offer a thought that kind of came from our discussion um, from my wife, actually, he who finds J.C. Sirius, now Caldwell, has found a good thing. Amen. Um, but, you know, I think often when we journey this life of faith and when we try and figure out what this whole Christianity thing's about, um, I think emotionally, if not cognitively, we can sometimes view the relationship as I need to do this in order for this. I need to read my Bible every morning or else God's not really going to be close. Uh, I need to pray a certain amount of hours. I need to go to church so many times a year. I need to do all this stuff and then God will dot, dot, dot. And in some ways that may be true because there's obviously consequences, whether good or bad, to, to what we participate in. But when we question the integrity of this relationship, I think is where we get into left field. Because JC likened at our table um, the presence of the Holy Spirit with us to a marriage. And uh, in a marriage, 
For example, JC and I just had a crazy wedding week last week. Uh, My little sister, Jessie, right here got married. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Uh, Back from their honeymoon, they're here. It's great. But they got married, and we were crazy busy all week long with wedding stuff. And it was a quick conversation here. Hey, babe, love you. Okay, bye. And then we're out. And it was like we were missing each other all week. And we didn't really have that time to sit and talk. But the Holy Spirit's like a marriage where when we're busy and when we go off and when we're busy with school and work and we have all these things going on and we lack awareness, it it doesn't equate with divorce. It doesn't equate with the relationship being over or with him being any less distant or, or, or any less close and any more distant to us. But instead, it's just, it's the awareness, it's the intimacy, it's the communion. And so if you're in a season where you've questioned the integrity of your relationship with, the God, with God because of your busyness, you don't have to do that because the Holy Spirit's close. And he actually is the seal of relationship, the approval. This is my son, this is my daughter, with you I am well pleased. So wanted to offer that final thought. Um, for those of you who that applies to, don't carry that. Lay it down. You don't have to carry that. The integrity of your relationship with the Lord is stable and is secure because it's a marriage and it's a covenant that you've been brought into. Amen? All right, let's stand. And let me pray a prayer of blessing on you. However you want to, if you want to lift your hands, if you want to posture yourself here, if you just want to stand there, that's great. But let me, let me pray a prayer, and I want you to receive this. Um, Father, I pray that you would send these young adults out um, in power and in wisdom and in authority this week. I pray that they would be your salt, your light, uh, that their words would be seasoned with salt, that they would be light shining vessels, beacons of hope, cities on a hill that cannot be hidden uh, in their classes, at their jobs, in their family, in their relationships. I pray that you would make them salty, that you would make them the people who carry the presence of God with them everywhere they go. And people of God, I pray that the Lord would bless you and keep you, that he would make his face to shine upon you, that he would be gracious to you this week, and that he would shine his bright, smiling countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the people of God, young adults said, amen, amen.